This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always great to be with all of you. Thank you for joining me. We have always uh, never a dearth of topics or discussions to have about what is most important or what should be most important in the forefront of the minds of our citizenry and yet doesn't get covered. And I like to look at it through the lens of liberty, through the lens of uh, the son of Syrian immigrants who were political refugees that came to this country because of the dream, because of the promise that it offered. And this week is no different. We couple things I want to talk to you about. Primarily, there's some recent polling that Real Clear Politics talked about regarding the percentage of Americans that have strong beliefs about free speech, and I'll get into that. The main question is, is it a partisan issue or not? You think it's not, but we'll see. And then a little bit about nationalism, national identity. Germany has recently made some statements through its government about Islamophobia. And, you know, listen, I've been critical of Germany in the past about its ability to identify what it means to be German for those who are not part of the German race, and they still haven't really necessarily come up with a formulation that's blind to national or ethnic origin, I should say. So what are they doing, and and what is the... Uh, rhetoric being said now, and surprisingly, it's in sync with the Islamists. Surprisingly, it's in sync with the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, and we'll get into that. But first, Carl Carl Cannon at Real Clear Politics has a fantastic piece that summarizes some of the data that came out this past week or two about free speech and what people believe. He opens by saying that the concept of free speech dates to the 5th century in ancient Greece and was codified in America's founding documents on December 15, 1791 with the ratification of the Bill of Rights. The 45-word First Amendment prohibited Congress from abridging freedom of speech or of the press and has long been understood to include any branch of government. Madison, James Madison, the drafter of the first 10 constitutional amendments, originally drafted a more fiery version of the First Amendment, one that included its underlying rationale. It said, quote, The people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak or write or to publish their sentiments, and the freedom of the press as one of the great bulwarks of liberty shall be inviolable. Inviolable is a powerful word. 
notwithstanding the fact that the right to speak and write freely has always come with various limitations. They range from libel and slander laws, national security secrets, obscenity statutes, the notorious analogy popularized by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes of falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing panic. Most citizens accept some form of these caveats, others do not, but by overwhelming majorities, Americans generally still cherish their rights to free expression, at least in theory. A new poll on censorship by Real Clear Opinion Research shows that 90% of voters, 90% in the U.S. expressed support for the founders' curbs on government power. And I'll remind you, this is my own comments, that remember the, the media, free expression, opinion was supposed to be a check on the government, was supposed to be the fourth estate, if you will. Not a branch of government, but basically the fourth check on all previous three. Overall nine, and back to Cannon's piece, overall nine in ten voters in the U.S. think that the First Amendment protections for freedom of speech is a good thing, while only nine percent think it's a bad thing, said pollster Spencer Kimball who directed the RCP survey. This is agreed upon across the demographics, like party affiliation, age, and race. For those who oppose censorship and put a premium on the free flow of ideas, that's the good news. But there's bad news, too. Inevitably, in our nation's current hyper-partisan environment, where one bores down on this subject, deeply divergent perspectives emerge. Partisan differences. Painting with a broad brush, Democrats grant significantly more deference to government than do Republicans when it comes to regulating free speech. And again, this is a core difference, obviously, between the left and the right in America. This wasn't the only fault line revealed by the survey. Some of what's dividing these differences is generational. As millennials and Gen Z have come of age in a digital age environment in which reasonable expectations of privacy seem a relic of the past. Those under 30 are most open to censorship by the government. Kimball noted, adding that 42% of this cohort deem it more important to them that the government protect national security than guard the right to free expression. Among those over 65 old, the corresponding percentage was 26 So that's fascinating, isn't it? The people that are less engaged in social media and technology seem to be less willing to hand over their privacy. And it's not just about engagement in media, it's about handing it over to government and letting government limit that free speech that it seems that millennials, those less than 30, don't seem to be bothered about. It harkens back to The quote from Churchill, I believe, who said that if you aren't a liberal before the age 20, maybe you have no heart. And if you are still a liberal after the age of 20, then maybe you have no brain. And, you know, that's a a hyperbolic way to say that rationale, as far as conservatism, starts to hit you as you get older, as you become a parent, a professional, a responsible breadwinner and that ultimately you start to realize that taxation is confiscation you start to realize that infringement on free speech is basically tyranny demagoguery dictatorship 
Cannon goes on. Also, a gender gap reveals itself, one that dovetails with the discrepancy in party registration between men and women. But which is more pronounced? Asking whether they support free speech, even if it's deeply offensive, 78% of men answered affirmatively, compared to 66% of women. But the most glaring gap is between conservatives and liberals, between Republicans and Democrats. On the issue of free expression, at least, Republicans are not the authoritarian party. That distinction belongs to the Democrats, the party launched by Thomas Jefferson, the founding father who famously said that if he were forced to choose between a government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter newspapers without government, because information transparency gets out. Government without newspaper becomes immediate tyranny. And this is a relatively new development. Traditionally, in opposing censorship, whether imposed by government or corporations, was a bedrock principle of liberalism in this country. The Civil Liberties, the American, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, was founded in 1920 to promote and defend free expression. And this ideal was at the heart of liberal thought, liberal lawmaking, and liberal jurisprudence during most of the 20th century. But times have changed. And notwithstanding the controversial current push by social conservatives to denude public school libraries of content they dislike, this Real Clear Opinion Research poll is the latest to document the gradual change that has taken place on the left when it comes to free expression. So let's look at some of the data. Republican voters, 74%, and independents, 61%, believe speech should be legal under any circumstance, while Democrats are almost evenly divided, 50-50. Barely majority, 53% say Speech should be legal under any circumstances, while 47% say it should be legal only under certain circumstances. Wow. Wow. The good news there is if you do the math, it's a significant majority, right? So uh, now if Democrats are in power and they have all three chambers, all they need is 50% and we begin to lose free speech rights. But if there's a balance there somewhere, a check and balance with divided government, then it becomes much more difficult because the conservatives are such so significantly on the side of free speech that the amount of Democrats needed to sign away their rights for opinions becomes much more than these polls say. But still, it's a frightening, I think, horrific poll. To go on, nearly one-third of Democratic voters, 34%, say Americans have too much freedom. That is scary, ladies and gentlemen. This compared to 14.6% of Republicans. Republicans are most likely to say Americans have too little freedom, 46%. While only 22% of Democrats feel that way. Independents were in the middle in both categories. Cannon goes on to explain that although majorities of Democrats, Republicans, and independents agree the news media should be able to report stories they believe are in the national interest, this consensus shifts when it comes to social media censorship. A majority of Democrats, 52%, approve 
of the government censoring social media content under the rubric of protecting national security. Among Republicans and independents, this percentage is only one-third. Poll respondents were read this statement, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to death the right for you to say it. Classic. Classic quote. Debate about who it came from. Voltaire or one of the scholars, philosophers in history. Only 31% of Democratic voters strongly agreed with that sentiment compared to 51% of Republicans. Wow. I'm actually a little significantly disappointed that only 51% of that. That is the mantra of of my work. In the Muslim community, we talk about the need to be able to stand up and, you know, whether you're Muslim or not, criticize Islam, give Muslims the freedom to not only leave their faith, but criticize the faith openly. Call it whatever they want. What is the the, the strength of a faith that cannot withstand words, that cannot withstand a campaign, that cannot withstand any movements against it? That's not a faith that becomes a cult, a tyranny. And that was the position. And yet, the rationale about those limiting speech that they call anti-Muslim, anti-Muslim bigotry, that they label as racism, when in fact it's not a race, being Muslim is a choice, it's a belief. Certainly there could be some bigotry out there, but people have a right to believe, to express. That's the human nature. And then you defeat bad ideas with good ideas. And yet, the penchant to suppress and criminalize speech has just gone through the roof. I think one of the main triggers for that was clearly the pandemic. We'll be talking more about that later, but at the end of the day, there was a ends justifying the means mentality with lockdowns and with with free speech monitoring about criticism of vaccines and criticism of antiviral mitigation. And that somehow if you did not believe that masks worked, if you did not believe that locking down humanity was the way to prevent spread. Now, initially, the first four to six weeks make sense until you get a handle on what is happening. But then that's enough. It went on for months and months, some states longer than others. Healthcare providers are not the only essential personnel. Everybody is essential that needs to make a living. And the answer to telling them to stay home is not printing cash. It's not simply saying their job won't go away because you shift the economic flow of the system in the country and eventually other flows happen in what's called economically in microeconomics and macro spontaneous order. And that spontaneous order changes and their job will be gone anyway. We saw this. Even in healthcare where the demands spiked on certain areas of care and went down and was stopped on elective areas. But to say that somehow 
it was best to simply suppress speech, remove Twitter posts, Facebook posts of people that believed in ivermectin, people that believed in certain things that, you know, I may disagree with, people that believed that the virus was made in a lab, which now is not only a theory, but seems to have been verified. That same fact that was thought to be conspiracy theory and thought to be complete bananas, as the left was saying, has turned out to be a a mea culpa years later. How about we get the respect back that was lost and trampled on of people that raised the question repeatedly about the origins of that virus because China was completely opaque when it came to working with the World Health Organization. China was was not revealing what was happening domestically in their country when it came to the initial origins of that virus. And yet, the United States, Western companies, started to immediately punish people that asked these things. And I think that changed because of fear of death, because of all of a sudden, uh, the, the country that is known in the planet to be the most risk you know, looking for risk, if you will, in order to succeed and create and and take those uh, um, adventures and creation became risk-averse, became risk-phobic. It's not to say that there wasn't a significantly difficult choice to make at the time of the pandemic, but the rest of us were saying, listen, it might be black and white to all of you about this one single virus. But all the other diseases you were locking down people with, with chest pain, having heart attacks, that half a million people die of a year, psychiatric disease, needing evaluation for substance abuse, suicidality, depression and untreated and and uh, changes in social behavior, social contact that created pandemics after pandemics, children who were clearly not affected at all, let alone hardly by this virus, had their entire educational system and socialization uprooted and erased for a few years. And now these these kids are still feeling a gap like the rest of us in time, but they had nothing. They were at home staring at screens. Some did not have the technology to do it. Others that did were not paying attention and not engaging with the teachers who didn't know if 5% of their class were paying attention because they were either falling asleep or, or just staring at the screen. And it goes on. So the pandemic, I think, had a huge shift in sort of the value system. And it's unfortunate that the leadership in Washington, through all aspects of the pandemic, did not have the courage to lead, but instead followed and allowed physicians and medical systems to basically dictate what the policy should be, and they became politicized. And it, it just it never ceases to amaze me that a profession that, as you think about your discussions with your own doctors before the pandemic, you'd talk to a physician about whether you should get chemotherapy or surgery or 
this surgery or that surgery or what treatment plan. And often we will, you know, give patients choices and rank them and and allow them to make a choice, obviously. And and so many times, because of defensive medicine, because of the number of options, physicians are want to be very paternal, maternal, and in telling patients what to do. And yet when it came to the pandemic, it was black and white. Either you're a quack because you don't want the vaccine, either you're a quack because you don't believe in lockdowns, or you are mainstream medicine. And listen, I'm an allopathic MD, and and, uh, I'm pretty traditional when it comes to science and and treatment of um, patients based on double-blinded academia, double-blinded studies in an academia, having gone through a traditional educational system at the Medical College of Wisconsin and then National Naval Medical Institute with NIH and others there. But the first thing we're taught in medical school is to be critical, to question authority, to to read a study and ask 20 questions and look for other studies. And if you find conflicting studies, think about what that might mean and that one study, two studies are not enough. So how does that then square with black and white lockdown people, black and white, this vaccine that we've never used the technology of before for vaccinations is something we should just accept without question. Hmm. I fear for our country, ladies and gentlemen, I fear. I fear for it when the simple statement that I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, is something only 31% of the left and 51% of the right believe. Unbelievable that that leaves 49% of the right and 69% of the left that would not defend that. That tells you that I don't believe it's principles of free speech, only I think it's that we are driven by by a, a passion of, of, now I say we, not me, but the, those numbers are as bad as they are, is that they're being driven by hate of the other. That it's not just that they disagree. They, we are beginning to develop an animus for the other side. And that animus animates them into developing a sense of authoritarianism over that side because of a sense of entitlement to do that. That's where we are. Cannon goes on, Democrats are significantly more likely than Republicans to favor stifling the free speech rights of political extremists. Also, Republicans don't vary by the group. Only about half of GOP voters favor censorship, whether asked about the Ku Klux Klan, Nazis, or the Communist Party. So this is an important debate, though. The Supreme Court has had it, and I think I've talked about this long before. And obviously, no, we should not have free speech to declare that we're going to uh, harm, physically attack, murder other, other individuals. So there are obviously limits to what is rational because then we degrade into inhuman con- inhuman conversations and that truly would be incitement. But that's when it's a direct, direct verbal declaration to cause harm. And in the Supreme Court case, Bradbury versus Ohio, 
That's essentially what I understand the result to be. But otherwise, bigotry, hate speech, listen, private companies should not necessarily become platforms for overt bigotry. Louis Farrakhan has no right to be publishing his his grotesque commentary about Jews, his anti-Semitism that has repeatedly been discussed on, on Twitter, now X, or Facebook. I don't understand how he's able to maintain that platform. Or same thing for Khamenei and other radicals that are running countries that seem to not have their social media influence curbed. But those are private companies. The government... When these places have websites, should not limit it because ultimately you defeat good spe- you defeat bad speech with good speech. The antiseptic of sunlight is the greatest treatment. If you look in Europe, they have hate speech laws much much more. Uh, obviously, we we don't, and they have pushed fascist Nazi hate groups underground to where they're no longer able to be monitored effectively. And that public monitoring, that transparency then prevents the antiseptic of sunlight and thus they're able to build and build and build. Turkey's a good example. Erdogan and his Islamists were pushed underground by the secularist Ataturk for for decades. And now they took over in 2000 and they've been in charge since. And they will never let go. It's a one-way street, just as Erdogan said. And he's limiting free speech and shuttering doors of universities and professors imprisoned and tortured, etc. And journalists. And that finding, as Cannon said, is perhaps counterintuitive. It dovetails with the Groundbreaking research released earlier this year on free speech by three California professors, Apple, Pan, Stanford, and um, I'm sorry, Ruth Apple and Jennifer Pan of Stanford and Margaret Roberts of the University of California, San Diego. Their study, Partisan Conflict Over Content Moderation, is more than disagreement about the facts. Examine liberals' greater willingness to embrace censorship of online content. The study posited three likely explanations. Number one, liberals are convinced of the presence of a fact gap in the current political environment, which is to say that liberals' desire to clamp down on misinformation stems from a certainty that conservative content is, objectively speaking, less factual than liberal content. Number two, instead, conservatives' reluctance to censor was based on a values gap, i.e. a genuine belief in the free marketplace of ideas, regardless of the media content. And three, what's really at play are party promotion incentives, which the authors define as a desire to leave misinformation online that promotes one's own party by flattering it or denigrating the other party. The authors showed 1,120 people in their study fake news headlines such as, quote, hours after signing an executive order on January 20. 2021, President Biden violated his own mask mandate. Or in September 2016, Ted Cruz tweeted, I believe in climate change when Texas freezes over. Both were fake. The poll respondents 
were then told the headlines were invented and solicited the respondents' views as to whether they would be censored. The results were stark. Even when Republicans agree that content is false, they are half as likely as Democrats to say that the content should be removed and more than twice as likely to consider removal as censorship. So you can see what happened here. For purposes of the study, the authors took door number one, the notion that liberal news is more reliable off the table. So that left door number two, the values gap, and door number three, the partisan advantage, still in play. If Republicans' aversion to censorship was transactional, they would have identified Democrat-friendly misinformation for removal, but they didn't. Regardless of the partisan slant of the content, Democrats are more likely to support the removal of content, while Republicans are more likely to oppose removing content. It was Democrats who more often employed situational ethics, giving a pass to misinformation that helped their side. So tell me where the morality is here. Consistency. Most Republicans didn't even differentiate based on which way the false headline cut. And last, a comprehensive Cato Institute poll done in 17 documented a similar phenomenon. I asked a series of questions about what kind of speakers should be barred from college campuses. Democrats more often based their decision on the political slant of the speaker, canceling conservatives but not liberals, while Republicans were wary of that whole censorship enterprise. Quote, even on issues in which one might expect Republicans to be more offended, they were less likely than Democrats to support canceling the speaker, the Cato study found. Vigorous support of the First Amendment has waxed and waned between the nation's two dominant political parties for the better part of two centuries, and they have often reversed roles. What's different in the 21st century is the zeal with which mainstream media luminaries have excused and in some cases pursued the censoring of politicians and even fellow journalists with whom they disagree. So, I'm going to take off the table Republican versus Democrat, but I will end this conversation by saying it's about conservatism versus liberalism. Liberals call themselves liberals, but true liberalism is the un, uh, unrestrained belief and in, in, in lack of sort of uh, uh, moorings and in, in thought, and you could be all over the place. So they're not even liberal, they're authoritarian. It's a sense of the need to use government to effectuate what they want to achieve. And they're not moored in core principles. So classical liberalism is gone. Conservatism is a belief to always maintain core beliefs that you believe are traditionally part of humanity and and keep them and empower them and strengthen them. That's what conservatism is about. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why I'm a conservative. It defends free speech even when we disagree with it. Even when we disagree with the speech, the facts... People can lie, but we will expose that they're liars. People can fabricate, but we will expose that they're fabricators. This is such an amazing topic, and I hope you rededicate yourself to protecting free speech, whether you 
like it or love it or hate what somebody's saying and don't like it, defend their right to say it. Because ultimately in the future, you're going to have an idea. You are going to believe something that somebody's going to want to snuff out. Somebody's going to want to erase. And our legacy, if it's not our words, what is it? Buildings? Structures? Our legacies are ideas. We educate, we build upon the ideas of the previous generation, and we leave the place a better place than it was. And some of those ideas are proven to be wrong. Some of them are proven to be harmful, but many will be proven to be beneficial. But we have to experiment in the public laboratory. Last, I want to talk about something that's happened in in Germany. Now, I've been critical of Germany in the past as uh, one of uh, the people I have enjoyed reading uh, the most has always been Bassam Tibi. Bassam is an uh, Islamic uh, Western scholar that came from Syria, lived in Germany for 30, 40 years, but then retired in America. And the anecdote I, I often say is he wrote some of the core texts about defining what political Islam is and how incompatible it is with the West And he essentially said that it was about theocracy, it was about tyranny, and that ultimately his understanding, his interpretation of Islam is far better suited to not to be separated from government as to prevent the establishment of that faith. And he has used groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, the Khomeinists and others as examples of the evil that religion can become if it becomes part of government and forced down the throat of humanity. But he felt that you need an alternative idea that unites people and that he had always studied Americanism as being that ism, that idea that unites people. When he lived in Germany, he said, unfortunately, the decades that he lived in Germany, he still did not feel German because there was no uniting idea about what being German was. It was an ethnicity. It was a race. Certainly had a history that in the early 20th century was horrifically evil that led to Nazism, but ultimately he did not necessarily feel that reform had happened in a way that left Germany with an idea that was going to be a solace for its entire citizenry. This past few weeks, the German president, as reported in many national media, um, came out and said, This is Frank Walter Steinmeier says that Islam belongs to Germany amid growing racism and Islamophobia fueled by propaganda of far right groups and parties that that have exploited the refugee crisis and attempted to stoke fear of immigrants. He said, quote, Islam, the Muslim religion, Muslim life, Muslim culture have taken root in our country. Steinmeier said at the celebration of the 50th founding anniversary of the Association of Islamic Cultural Centers in Cologne. Today, the diversity of Islam, the diversity of over 5 million Muslims is also part of our country. Steinmeier pointed out that freedom of religion meant also protecting the rights of all believers. He said, quote, Germany is an ideologically neutral state, but religious freedom does not mean that our country is free of religion. No, it means giving religion space and protecting the freedom of believers, all believers. So it's not... He says it's ideologically neutral. Is that helpful? I think if you have a social contract, 
that makes the country whole. In America, it's Americanism, our constitutionalism, our Bill of Rights, our separation of government, our separation of powers, our Establishment Clause that comes out of the First Amendment. If you have that, then that idea takes precedence over all others as far as a guiding principle, or else you need to write amendments, or else you need to not have that be the central constitution, or else the Supreme Court would not be the final say when you have election debates like Gore v. Bush. When you have certain debates that exist like abortion, it would not end at the Supreme Court. It would end up being about popular vote and majoritocracy. So there are a lot of questions there. Steinmeier's remarks came in the wake of a recent report that said that racism and Islamophobia have become part of everyday life in Germany. A total of 898 anti-Muslim incidents, I don't know where they got that from, probably the CARE version in Germany, were recorded in Germany in 2022, while the number of unreported cases remains high. And I'm sure there's anti-Muslim bias and bigotry, but if you want to solve that, as I've testified to Congress many, many times, then Muslims need to lead the educational process of why we embrace Americanism first and foremost above our own political ideas and a faith that needs reform, that we need to counter the Islamic State, that we need to defeat that idea so that it doesn't radicalize and jihadize, jihadicize, if you will, our communities. Among the documented cases were 500 verbal attacks, including inflammatory statements, insults, threats, on and on. 11 threatening letters to mosques, excessive threats of violence and death were recorded. The report noted 190 cases of discrimination and 167 of injurious behavior. Racially motivated attacks on young people and children are increasing, it said. Anti-Muslim crimes are often not recognized as such. A country of more than 84 million, Germany has the second largest Muslim population in Western Europe after France. It is home to more than 5 million Muslims, according to official figures. So, my point here is that Germany has a lot of work to do to figure out what is the ideology. It's constitutional, it's political, it's social, political, and cultural identification of Germanism, Germany, and what it stands for. You can't just sort of mandate that somehow we are also a Muslim nation or Islam is at home. And that's not going to come from Steinmeier. It's not going to come from non-Muslims. It has to come from Muslims. It is a meeting halfway. You can't simply say that somehow these statements and you demand that, oh, the problem is Muslims are the victims constantly, constantly. It's, if, the, the, if you look at the president's remarks there in Germany, it's so much just like Obama's and Biden's remarks and the left here especially and the right in which it always seems as if it's a victim identity politic that they make being Muslim into a race, this perfect idea that doesn't need any reform. Obama goes to a mosque in Baltimore, the largest mosque and 
talks to women behind a screen up at the top. Justin Trudeau talks about the women upstairs that he can't even see their faces when he's at a mosque. And that misogyny doesn't seem to bother them. There's a a, a bigotry of low expectations when it comes to principles of immigrant faith communities like Islam, and yet they attacked us because of that radicalization, because of that radicalism, and Muslims like myself have been trying to reform it, and there are leading Muslims in our Muslim reform movement that could be looked upon with ideas that are at home here in the West, but have been marginalized, marginalized because of political correctness and identity politic and that red-green axis. So please, whether it's Germany, Italy, France, Belgium, Sweden, all of these countries, the United States, Canada, the UK, are going through a process of figuring out how to engage communities that come in with theopolitical movements, especially Islamic that are not compatible with the countries they're in, and we need to confront that. And it's not about confronting the people. It's about confronting the ideas that are incompatible, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's Putin's uh, 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 tyrannical ideas, or any other idea incompatible with Western liberalism, classical liberalism, conservatism, Western ideas of secular democracy, we need to confront ideas like theocratic Islamism. And what's happening in Germany with these statements, I think, is another example of how little our leaders get it and how much they kowtow to simply political correctness and identity politics. And I won't do it. Because I have too much respect for the country I love for my faith, for my faith community that I that I love but think needs a lot of work. That's humanity. That's realism and transparency and honesty, not demagoguery. Thank you, as always, for being with me. I hope uh, you uh, enjoyed the discussion on free speech and national identity. There's always a lot more to come where that came from. And we'll be back with you on Reform This. Find me on X at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. And we'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.